BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill who is on vacation with his family and back next week. Here in our smoky nation's capital, it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, June 30th. We're hours away from knowing how the Supreme Court will rule on President Biden's student loan debt relief. There's still a lot of cases to talk through, including the end of affirmative action and a surprising election decision. The Republican primary is heating up, but is Ron DeSantis already cooled off? A new round of polling begs another question. Can Trump beat Biden? We're still learning about failures ahead of the January 6th riot. And meanwhile, the Jack Smith investigation is hearing from even more witnesses. To make sense of it all, our three top Washington reporters. First, my colleague at NBC News, a first-timer on the Bill Press Pod, White House reporter for NBC News, Catherine Doyle. Good morning. Kirk Beto, editor for the National Journal Hotline. Morning, Andrew. Morning, everybody. And Emily Gooden, U.S. political reporter for DailyMail.com. Morning. Good morning. Let's jump right in. Uh, it's 8.30, so we're not going to know uh, how the Supreme Court has ruled on its final cases until uh, later this morning, but it doesn't mean they haven't already made a lot of headlines. Yesterday, uh, Emily, we got the court's decision on affirmative action. Can you just sort of sum up what we saw the court um, do to the nation's affirmative action programs? Well, to sum it up, they struck it down. Um, they ruled that colleges can no longer take race into account as a su- specific basis for admissions. This court has been a little fascinating to me, Ginger, because in the way it's been ruling. As you pointed out in this college admissions case, they did mm-hmm. strike it down. And we've seen some conservative rulings like this from this court, particularly on abortion and more social issues. But on issues that are of importance to Democrats, election issues, they did order a redrawing of Alabama's congressional map to help black voters. They did reject a Trump-backed election law theory that he was trying to use to argue he won the 2020 election. So there's this interesting dichotomy in this court between how they're ruling and they're so silent, but we'd love to hear some back scenes about how these discussions are going on. Yeah, so we got two big cases, as you said, the affirmative action case, and then you mentioned um, this election case, also this case on independent legislatures. It had to do with maps. Kirk, how important is that independent legislatures case that we heard the court kind of surprise everyone and rule in favor of of the liberal, the the Democratic opposition? Well, it, it could have been the whole ballgame. The central question of this was a lawsuit about the Republican-drawn congressional lines in North Carolina. But at the 
the bigger question with it was about what we're talking about here, the independent state legislature theory, which is a more fringy uh, legal theory that says, in essence, that state legislatures have total control over how uh, federal elections are administered in the states, and they can do so without oversight of the state courts. Now, what the little background on this case was is the GOP drawn the state legislature really gerrymandered uh, the law, their first attempt at the North Carolina lines in 2021. Then the liberal majority, the then liberal majority on the state Supreme Court found that it violated the state's constitution. They sued and it worked all its way up to the Supreme Court. What surprised us here was the narrowness of the ruling here in Moore v. Harper. Um, in that the Supreme Court kind of rejected the idea that states can be these completely independent actors without any sort of state judicial review. Now, what was interesting about this ruling as well was the Supreme Court really affirmed that federal courts still have oversight as well, meaning that they are inserting themselves again into this political process. They're reserving that right. You know, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, his whole MO has trying to been to take the partisanship out of the courts, to take the politics out of the court. He cringes when you say it's a conservative, you divide them between camps, the Republican appointed judges, the Democratic appointment judges, to him that we're all just uh, justices. And this ruling kind of affirms that they are still going to be referees in these very partisan, very contentious political decisions. So, you know, it wasn't this doomsday scenario that a lot of, uh, civil rights and voting rights activists thought that would just completely empower these state uh, legislatures to rule however, to oversee these elections however they want. That could have opened the door to some extreme gerrymandering, maybe even fake uh, false electors. That's been a lot of discussion since uh, Trump tried to overturn the results of the election. But it's still making sure that the Supreme Court is going to be the referee in these decisions. So we're going to be watching the fallout from this case for years to come. Catherine, let me ask you, you know, this, there was expectations about how the court was going to rule, whether they were going to rule at all on these cases. There were expectations about how the court was going to rule on the voting rights um, a, a case that also came earlier this term. Is this court more liberal than we thought it is? Is Are we going to hear, and I, I know we got one more big case, really two big cases left, but are we going to start to hear grumbling that this isn't really a conservative court? Uh, that's possible. We've, and we've heard, we've heard Trump at times try to justify his decision to put um, different justices on, on the court and, and to justify as well that the court is as conservative as, as many of his supporters um, had hoped uh, and wanted it to be. I mean, the Roberts Court is remaking the law, as we've discussed, on affirmative action and um, on other issues, but it's not all wins for the right. He was joined in the independent state legislature case this week by Kavanaugh, Justices Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who were two Trump appointees, very controversial, um, and who helped uh, spike that uh, independent state legislature case that Trump allies had raised as part of his effort to reverse the, the 2020 election outcome. So, um, that divide isn't as su suggest at least to the public that it that it's not as conservative um, or as uh, as strongly conservative as perhaps many of Trump supporters on the right would have hoped. Emily, let me let me ask you what these cases mean when we look ahead to next year. Um, when 
we're looking at an election that very well could be, and, and we'll get to this, a rematch between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. Is the court sending a message like we're not going to take your um, your theories? I, I know uh, our colleague Lawrence Hurley over at NBC talked to John Eastman, who had pushed that independent legislature theory. He said trying to make it again would be, would be murkier, were his words. But um, is it a message to those those wings that this this won't play at the at the court? Yeah, it absolutely could be. It could be the message of we're watching. We will follow and enforce the law. Um, Trump and his team did numerous lawsuits in 2020 trying to overturn election results to get recounts. None of this went anywhere. And I think the courts are standing firm and saying, you'll see the same thing again. Let's look a little bit into the future. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know how the court is going to rule today on student loans. But Catherine, how important is this decision going to be for Joe Biden? If the court blocks his efforts to um, provide billions of dollars in, in loan relief, is this a real political liability for him? It certainly could be. The student loan uh Push, forgiveness push by, by Biden um, was very helpful in galvanizing his younger supporters ahead of the election last year, um, right up until the date of the uh, of the midterms. Um, his his supporters were talking about it and, and have continued to, and it's really um, a push that's been pretty strong amongst younger voters, um, voters that are not as reliably uh, that they aren't as reliable in their turnout in, in elections and, and that Biden will need to keep on side if he wants to win again next year. Um, that's uh, probably something that they're thinking carefully about as they await this decision. The White House says that they are confident in their legal standing and that they um, are, but that they hope that um, they'll prevail. And um, but if not, I think that they'll have to think carefully about how it is that he's going to the president's going to galvanize the the support that he needs to um, to 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 emerge to to make it back to the White House in 2024, um, especially given some of his softer poll numbers with younger voters. Let's turn to 2024, Kirk. We can look at at some polling, and we see. Um, the candidates on the Republican side starting to um, get on the road, starting to talk to voters. Um, is it is it heating up? And as it heats up, um, is it already a done deal at this point for Donald Trump? Well, Trump, ever since Trump relaunched his third White House bid last November. He's led in every single poll, and frankly, it hasn't been very close. And as the field grows, we're at to more than a, a dozen candidates now. He only becomes stronger. Even after his two indictments, including the most recent one in the classified documents case, you saw his polls take a slight dip, uh, a li- just a, a tinge, but not enough to be anything really measurable. Even if you look at the polls of the individual states as well, he's still head and shoulders the favorite in South Carolina, in New Hampshire. I mean, Ron DeSantis has really been concentrating his campaigning right now in New Hampshire. And 
the problem is New Hampshire voters and Iowa voters as well really want a retail politician. And DeSantis is, doesn't have the best, let's say, bedside manner. Or he's not really working the uh, the rope line great over there. And we've seen a spate of stories this week about that. You know, I looked at polling from a, this at similar points in the 2020 cycle and the 2016 primary cycles. And it's weirdly very consistent. In 2019, at this point, Joe Biden had a, you know, not as sizable as a lead as uh, Trump in the crowded Democratic field, but a lead nonetheless. And in 2016, and at this point in 2015, Trump had already been kind of running away uh, in most polls. There was a slight surge of Ben Carson in November in 2015, uh, but after that subsided, it was Trump's was almost wire to wire here. And you know, there's still plenty of unknowns right now. So I'm not going to say that, you know, why even bother having Iowa, New Hampshire or anything at this point, especially with all these legal cases against Trump that we're going to get into in a little bit later. But it's still his nomination to lose. Emily, let's check in on some of these candidates that seemed to think they could beat Trump. Nikki Haley um, got in early, has been running. Um, is Is her campaign already done? Maybe. I was looking back too at some of the old races and I had forgotten that last cycle in the Democratic primary, Kamala Harris dropped out of the race before voters went to vote for the first time. So we do see a lot of candidates come in early and flame out early. And usually it's because of money. They can't sustain the pace that's needed to do a modern day presidential campaign. Um, It's going to be something to watch. And I bring this up because... We're reaching the end of second quarter fundraising and numbers will be out in the next few weeks. So that's also what donors, party officials, everyone else is going to be tracking, poll numbers, money, the same metrics we see in every campaign. And Trump is very good at both of those. And Trump has been raising money off of his indictments, right? He's been out using them to rile up his supporters. Um, Catherine, let me ask you, um, there's a couple of candidates in the field who seem to think they can toss some of their own money. Um, Vivek, this Republican businessman, um, but came out this week and um, called for repealing the Espionage Act because he thought that the law that was used to indict Trump was just problematic, the one that we used to make sure no one in government is leaking our secrets. What is his What is his deal? What is he trying to do here? <laughs> so Vivek is calling, Vivek Brahmaswamy is calling the Espionage Act un-American. He's citing its legacy use against anti-war activists and political dissenters, um, arguing that it's used selectively to go after people who are, as he puts it, politically disfavored, people who are breaking with the prevailing opinion, the status quo, the, the deep state, maybe, to use a term that would be familiar to people like Donald Trump or people who support Donald Trump. Um, and he says it's being weaponized against the former president in the documents case. Um, the tie that he related to is, is Eugene Debs, another person who ran for president, or somebody who ran for president from jail, um, which is potentially the fate that Donald Trump might be facing, depending on how this indictment goes and, and his future indictment goes. Um, but Bevec's um, op-ed and, and his case really argues that uh, 
to the point that Trump and his allies are making, that this is a politically motivated case against him and that were it not Donald Trump, were it not somebody who in, in his argument is politically disfavored, they, they wouldn't be using this particular um, Espionage Act to, to go after him. Um, and so I think it remains to be seen how this lands with his supporters. Uh, it's likely to be persuasive, I think, not to Vivex necessarily, but to people on the right who are already inclined to see the Justice Department um, and the federal legal system as politically inclined against Trump. Let me ask you, Emily, because we're seeing a bit of this debate starting to emerge among the Republican candidates, particularly um, being vocalized by Christie and other Trump critics that um, Trump is going to keep winning as long as no one will really sort of go after him. And that if the Republican primary is all just candidates saying, um, yeah, we think Trump is the victim here. Yeah, we think Trump did nothing wrong. Or yeah, we think Trump is great, uh, that voters are never going to be persuaded away from them. Um, are we are we watching a tipping moment in the Republican primary where maybe they, they start to go after him? Or is Vivek evidence that like they don't see that as a path to victory and they're just going to keep um, on the path that they've they've tried before, but didn't really work. I think it remains to be seen. I would encourage people to mark um, August twenty third on their calendars. That's the date of the first GOP primary. And Trump just did an interview with Reuters, where or not the first primary, so the first primary debate is August twenty third. And Trump just did an interview with Reuters, saying he might skip the event and hold his own. Um, Part of that could be his need for attention and wanting to be to center stage, but part of it could be what you said, that he's getting more and more afraid that he'll be ganged up on, that people will attack him. Chris Christie has made it clear he's willing to go after him, and does Trump want to be on the same debate stage with that? So I think you're seeing some testing of the waters and how voters are going to react, how it's going to play in the retail politics of Iowa and New Hampshire. So definitely to be determined. Kirk, you've been looking at the the polling. So let me shift now to the hypothetical matchups that are the general election. Trump leading. Is there a growing sense among Democrats about or pollsters about what type of chance he stands in a general election? Well, what's interesting is Biden is still very unpopular right now. We've talked a little bit about this and when we were talking about his effectiveness as a president and what this potential student loan uh, ruling might do his image, especially among young voters. You know, I was looking at the presidential approval ratings historically uh, on 538 and Biden is the most, more voters disapprove of Biden than almost any other modern president at this point in their presidency, save for former president Trump. He's polling almost within the margin of error of Trump at this time right now. The problem, not the problem, but the benefit for Democrats right now is that even if they don't approve of his job performance as president, they still see him as the strongest opponent against Trump because he's the only Democrat that's beaten Trump. He's been hammering that home on the campaign trail as well. Um, you know, his whole line is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And if Trump's the alternative, then Biden stands a pretty good chance of winning. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of major Democrats 
kind of stay on the sidelines and couch back any sort of talk of a primary challenge because they need him as strong as he can against Trump. However, there was an Emerson, I believe it was an Emerson College poll out last week that looked at the effect of if a third party candidate like Cornell West on the Green Party, which does have ballot access in several swing states, were on the ticket. And he's pulling just enough, especially among uh, younger uh, black voters as well, to really hamper Biden's margins there. So that's a development that I'm going to be watching a little bit to see if how much the how serious these third party challengers are when both of the front runners of the two major parties are just so deeply unpopular. It's going to be a close race regardless. This is a very narrowly divided country as we've seen in so many polls, and it is going to be another slawed close race. Catherine, when we're looking at these polls, is this giving optimism in Trump world? Do they um, not just saying, you know, he did it was the margins were close in 2020. He can get them closer in 2024. But is the polling giving them some some look at Biden as being vulnerable? Uh, They see Biden as being um, hugely vulnerable, especially when it comes to uh, voter enthusiasm and where areas where, I mean, there's there's a small number of, of voters that they need to win over in, in order to in order to secure the election or to win the election. Um, whether they're able to persuade these people is another story, but I think that certainly the hope is that um, Trump will be able to do that. I mean, he, I think that they feel uh, more confident than, um, they did in 2020. And that comes despite the fact that polling shows that many of these swing voters are still inclined to vote for Biden over Trump, which is the reason that the Biden side feels confident in this respect. So I think that um, we'll have to see how things play out over the coming months with Trump's various indictments. But so far, um, as we've discussed a little bit, they haven't really they haven't really hurt him in the way that uh Perhaps Democrats hoped that they would. Um, and the fact as well that that so many voters would consider backing a third party candidate should be worrisome for the president who's in office right now, for, for Biden and, and his hopes to, to, to make it back there. Emily, let me ask you, I am struck by something Catherine mentioned, which is this sort of what I think we're calling the double dislikes, voters who dislike both Biden and Trump um, and are overwhelmingly breaking towards um, Biden. That type of scenario sort of often sets up um, elections where people go on the attack and it gets really vicious. If everyone already doesn't like you, there's not really a cost um, in being critical or being out being critical of your opponent. Um, Do these poll numbers tell us, the folks like you and I and Catherine and Kirk, who are going to be watching these elections every day for the next 18 months, are we in for a bruiser? Is that what we can predict off of these scenarios? Well, Sadly, yes. I think it's going to get dirty. I think, as you pointed out, Trump has nothing to lose. And we are going to be talking later about more indictments that he faces. And I will remind listeners that the Justice Department does not indict setting presidents. And you can be sure that's probably where Donald Trump's mind is going. This White House won't even entertain or consider answering a question if 
Biden would pardon Trump to let the country move on in the same way that Nixon was pardoned. Um, so yes, it's going to get dirty. It's going to get personal. We saw it get personal in 2020 with uh, the attacks on um, President Biden's family. So yes. Well, there's lots more to talk about, as you said, including um, the state of Jack Smith's ongoing investigation, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Kirk Beto, Emily Gooden, and Catherine Doyle. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union of North America. Under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the iron workers say the sky's the limit, and boy, do they mean it. You look at most of America's iconic structures, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the Arch in St. Louis, the New World Trade Center, all built by iron workers. Check out their website, ironworkers.org, to find out more about their great work. We salute the Iron Workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Catherine Doyle, also from NBC News, Kirk Beto from the National Journal Hotline, and Emily Gooden from the DailyMail.com. Let's jump right in, Catherine, um, to some of these questions that are still swirling um, about January 6th. Uh, we saw the Senate this week put out a report um, talking about intel failures um, ahead of this, things that they said should have been caught uh, before the actual riot. Uh, we know Jack Smith is continuing to investigate. Is there Are there still things to learn about January 6th? Or do we have all of the details at this point? The January 6th story is still wide open. I mean, with the report that came out that, that's, that suggested that the that the agencies ignored warnings of violence and, and the probe still ongoing um, by Jack Smith and, he, and, his, and the interviews, crucially, that are still ongoing where he's talking to uh, Trump's close aides, Rudy Giuliani, um, and he's talking to uh, many other people who were in, Trump's, who, who were in the Trump administration um, as, well as, as well as others. I think that uh, we're still waiting for quite a lot of information to come out uh, and that we don't have a date yet for, for um, a possible um, 
for a possible report, but but I think that, that that's still to come and, and we should be um, girding for it. Kirk, you alluded to these poll numbers earlier that we've seen as the first indictment happened and the second indictment happened. Um, the first one, it seemed like Trump got a bump. The second one, Belicky held neutral. Um, and, and one distinction I've made in these in looking at them as the first one was all facts we knew already. There was no surprises. Michael Cohen had said all of this out loud. The second indictment had some details we didn't know, right? There was pieces, conversations, recordings, details that were new to the public. Uh, when we look ahead at Jack Smith and the possibility that either he delivers an indictment or, as the law requires, writes a report. Um, are, are these the kind of events you think could move voters either in a primary or a general election? Well, you know, Lordy, there were tapes in this last indictment, you know, uh, with the Jack Smith report. These are the type of things that would traditionally move voters. You know, we're just in unprecedented territory right now where we're for the first time in history, we have a former president being federally indicted. And there's one thing that Donald Trump has proven adept at, and it's surviving these type of unprecedented times. It, in a normal circumstance, yes, it would move voters and everything. And I think what I'm going to be paying real close attention to is not so much his poll numbers as we these investigations keep uh, ratcheting up as we learn a little bit more about uh Trump's role in January 6th and more than we already do right now. But when does it become incumbent upon his political opponents within the party? And I'm not even just talking about the never Trumpers or folks like Mitch McConnell, but the actual people running to replace him at the top of the ticket start making this a campaign issue. You've obviously already seen Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, um, heavily criticized Trump, same with Mike Pence a little bit. But when does it become a default position to not uh, mimic his witch hunt rhetoric or talk about uh, signing a pardoning pledge to him at all? Uh, Because I'm really interested to see what the party leaders do here and the people who in the would be party leaders as well to see if when does it become a politically expedient to do that. And until that happens, I don't think voters are going to change their mind either. Emily, when you when you hear such senior Trump aides um, going before the grand jury, when we know that Giuliani, uh, Roman, these guys are talking to Jack Smith, either by choice or by force, we don't know. (laughs) Does that change the way voters are going to view Jack Smith that uh, there are voices of, of trusted Trump aides involved in this? No, I think people have made up their mind um, and that they either believe Trump or they don't. I don't think there's a lot of middle ground here because this has been going on for over a year now. So I, unless there's some sort of major, major bomb drop, I don't see people changing their mind either way. Um, I do think the indictment in this in this case is going to be the October surprise of this election. I think we'll know either way by the end of the year. I don't think they would let this drag into an election year. It's hard to tell, but this is going to be, could be the defining moment of the GOP primary. And let me follow up on something you said earlier. You know, you can't indict a sitting president in Biden, in, in Trump's mind, but does Trump 
try to use that to sully Biden. We hear him talking about his son, Hunter, all the time. We see Republicans on the Hill trying to tie um, accusations against Hunter to Joe. I mean, are, are there... Again, it's going to be a bruiser. Um, but how much of this litigating of the justice system is just the center of, of the next year? Uh, that's a great question, because we're seeing Republicans hold these hearings on the weaponization of the the Justice Department. You know, Kevin McCarthy is threatening um, uh, to recall Merrick Garland. It's... It's in the Biden case, I feel like it's a little different. I feel like they're trying to make more like a guilt by association that Hunter is using his father's position to make money for the greater Biden family, right? There, there's still there's still no indications that the president had a direct hand in this. Um, so, yeah, just it's going to be dirty. Like, as you said, it's going to be a bruiser and it's going to be a crazy year and I'm wondering at some point, are voters going to tune this out, right? Like at what point do they just stop listening? Well, we will have to be watching closely to see both ourselves what is said and what the voters are listening to or turning, tuning out over the next year. It has been great talking with all of you today. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News. In for Bill, along with Kurt Beto, Emily Gooden, and Catherine Doyle. Now it's time for our reporters to share their favorite story of the week, something that stuck out to them while wading through the fire hose of news. Emily, why don't you go first? <laughs> well, I found one that made me laugh. And after kind of a crazy news week, I thought we could all use a little bit of a chuckle. So um, in South Korea, people have grown a year younger overnight as the country has changed how it counts people's ages. Um, so this is fun. In South Korea, they used a traditional age counting custom that considers every person one year at birth. So, and then adds another year when the calendar hits January 1st. So let's say you were born on December 31st. The next day you would turn two. Now South Korea has decided to go to the system that the rest of the world uses. So a lot of people have lost a year or two off their age with just the swipe of a pen. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. I would like to drop uh, a, a year somewhere along the way. Kirk, how about you? Uh, you know, it's my uh, my birthday this weekend. I would love to drop a year or two uh, as well <laughs> with with that. That was that's a really good story. Uh, my uh, story this week is a is a break from all the uh, Supreme Court rulings that we've all been uh, neck deep in. You know, there's a reason I didn't go to law school, and it's I'm reminded of that this week. Uh, but I read this wonderful interview uh, with Brian Windhorst, who's an ESPN NBA reporter and analyst breaking down the one-year anniversary since he did this incredible monologue where he he's an NBA insider. He knows trades and everything. And a year ago, he heavily insinuated that there's going to be a big blockbuster trade with the Utah Jazz and the Minnesota Timberwolves, but did not did everything but said what the details are. He had so many leading questions. It was a tour-de-force performance uh, where he – you know, had the finger pointing meme and everything. He was leaning back. He looked in total control. And he did a sit down interview with GQ this week that I just absolutely loved. And one of my favorite lines from the story was the reason he was able to lean back and gesticulate so much was because the chairs on the ESPN show first take are much nicer 
than any of the other shows because host Stephen A. Smith has the highest requirements for chairs. And it was just chef's kiss. Perfect. A great little break from uh, all the drier court rulings we've been reading. That's great. Catherine, how about you? Uh, I was amused by Ian Sams, a White House spokesperson, making an appeal to editors that they too benefit from so-called Bidenomics, which is the, the term that the administration is using to sell Biden's economic record ahead of the election. Um, he, was brought, he, he said that editors of a certain age can now get insulin for a certain price and that they drive to their newsrooms over rebuilt bridges thanks to the infrastructure law. So I wondered if perhaps our editor could, could weigh in on whether Bidenomics is working as Ian Sam's hopes to persuade them that the president should be returned to office. I may be an editor, but I'm I'm not that old that I would need Medicare benefits. So I, I but I did drive across a bridge to get to the office today. So I have to give some thought to that. For my story, we're going to try to explain it in a suitable for a family podcast way. But it was a fascinating piece by ProPublica that also had nothing to do with the court and had everything to do with a type of surgery that is performed to help men look more well endowed. Um, (laughs) Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Um, But it turns out this world of penile enlargement surgery is really dangerous and unregulated. And ProPublica this week had just a really harrowing read about some of the side effects of men have suffered after undergoing this surgery. And what I found to be really the most fascinating part of the story was how these surgeries that have all of these problems get approved by the FDA. There is a surgery that has been done that has FDA approval. And it turns out that the process to get a medical device approved by the FDA is different than what it takes to get a medication approved. The medication involves all kinds of clinicals and studies and reports. If you have a medical device, all you have to prove is that it is substantially similar to another already approved medical device. So that implant um, was enough like implants that are put in people's arms or legs, and they argued that for that reason, it should be approved without any studies. And the piece really lays out a lot of the problems. So come for the interesting discussion on um, the way that the FDA approves medical devices. And here are some really harrowing stories about how people um, have been affected by these surgeries. So uh, recommend that piece uh, in ProPublica that ran this week. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to my NBC News colleague, White House reporter Catherine Doyle, Kurt Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline, and Emily Gooden, U.S. political reporter for DailyMail.com. 
I'm Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill, who will be back next Tuesday with an interview with Neil King Jr., a reporter who walked 330 miles over 26 days from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Wrote a great book about it. He got a unique and surprising view of our country literally at ground level. That's next Tuesday on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks for listening.